In the midst of worship there, um, a, a picture was, was brought of a, a group of whales sailing through the water, sailing, swimming through the water, and they were swimming with such speed and strength, and this reflected us worshipping. As we were worshipping, we were picking up speed and strength as we were navigating the waters in front of us, and there were chains around the wheels, but as they were swimming, the chains became like paper and broke off. And it was this idea that God was saying to us that as we pressed in and worship, that actually freedom was coming. And we bring all of that into, I share that at this point, just as we get ready to step into the message that we're looking at. I keep looking to come back to our confidence series um, in the book of Luke. And we are going into the book of Luke, but I just sense that God is doing some things as he's preparing us as a church for this new season that we're turning the corner into. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 7? And we're going to read from verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who's had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This passage opens with an invitation. From the outset, we learn that Jesus has been invited to Simon's house for tea. Now, the divine is in the detail. It's within the detail of this broader picture that this passage really comes to light. And the passage opens with the verse, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The English Standard Version of this translates it differently. It translates it as one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place. Now, immediately, we translate this into our rhetoric and into our language as church. Jesus has been invited to be present within a setting. 
He's been invited to be present amongst a group of people. And according to this passage in the English Standard Version, he comes and takes his place. And the picture here is brilliant. It's a picture of a people gathering around the presence of Jesus. It's a picture then of church. Because every week we come together, we come from different backgrounds, different experiences of life, different experiences even of the past week, and we gather together. And we gather not around a denominational barrier or persuasion. We gather not around a leader or personality. We gather not around a set of beliefs or a preferred style of expression. We gather around the presence of Jesus. And I think it's important that we call that out. We don't gather around denominational banners. We don't gather around things like the colors of the wall or the brightness or the dimness of the room. We don't gather around a preacher or a pastor or a worship leader or a style of worship. Let it be clear in this house, when we gather, we gather around the presence of Jesus. He has to be at the center, the epicenter. And I love the language used in the English Standard Version. He was invited and he came and he took his place. And there is so much highlighted here in terms of what happens when Jesus takes his place amongst his people and his presence begins to manifest. And it's interesting that this passage doesn't suggest that Jesus was doing anything. You know the way the other passages open up when it tells us that he was at the synagogue or he was teaching the masses or whatever, but it doesn't suggest that he's doing anything. He isn't teaching, he isn't performing a miracle, he isn't taking part in an act of organized worship, he isn't challenging, he isn't debating. He is simply present. He has simply turned up within a moment and taken his place. He's reclining at the table, he's taking his place within that moment and that setting, and everything that unfolds unfolds purely as the result of him being present. All that takes place, the ministry, the revelation, the teaching, the many parable, all of that flowed out of him simply taking his place. He was invited, he turned up, and as a result, ministry, revelation, teaching, transformation was experienced by those that gathered around his presence. Now, if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then that means that we have to understand he does inhabit the praises of his people. Where two or three are gathered, he is in the midst. If we seek him, we will find him if we seek him with all of our hearts. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Jesus is still walking amongst his lampstands. He is still alive and present in and through his church. The church is still his body. The church is still his chosen conduit of his presence on the earth. And when we put him at the epicenter of who we are and we gather around his presence, anything can happen. And we must learn to make room for him. And that's a phrase that we mention. It's even a phrase that we sing. But what does that actually mean to make room for him? And what happens when we do? Well, this passage reveals the answer to that question. And perhaps most noticeably, the answer to the question is best seen in the contrast and the tension that exists between the Pharisee who's hosting the dinner party and the woman that gate crashed it. 
Now, the host of the party is a guy called Simon, and we don't know that much about him except that he is a Pharisee. And Pharisees get mentioned quite frequently within the Gospels because they were the religious leaders of the day and the time when the culture, or the Gospels rather, were written. And in history, we read of the Jewish faith dividing into three sects, three divisions that divided and revolved around approaches to faith and the way that they believed that faith should rightly be expressed. It's hard to believe that religious people would divide around strongly held opinions, but apparently it does happen. And the three divisions that existed in Jesus' time was the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees were the kind of free thinkers of the day. They were the spiritual hippies of their time. They held purely to the written law that was handed down to Moses and held a bit of a laxed approach to morality. The Essenes, however, were the complete opposite of that. They were hardcore. They were the kind of Puritans of the day, kind of like Jewish monks that focused entirely upon purity and believed in isolating themselves from different aspects of life and different aspects of the world in order to achieve that purity. The Pharisees were the formalists of the day. The word Pharisee actually means separated. They believed that they were separated out from others, that they were set apart by God specifically for the task of preserving the law and ensuring <clears throat> its fulfillment. Now, as well as the written law, they believed in the oral law that had been handed down from generation to generation and comprised of a whole load of traditions, of rules, and regulations that had to be obeyed in order to fulfill God's standards. And these traditions that were handed down were full of strict rules that saw these guys become obsessed with avoiding defilement. And that meant that they constantly engaged in ceremonial washing to obtain cleansing. For them, cleanliness actually was right next to godliness. And their cleanliness was not just to do with their hearts, but it was to do with their actions and it was to do with their interactions. Now, bring all of that into this passage in Luke chapter 7. <coughs> Jesus has been invited to the house of a Pharisee for dinner. And we don't get what the motive behind the invitation was. That's not told to us. It's not clear. But what is clear is that Simon, the host of the party, is in the process of forming an opinion about Jesus. And he has invited Jesus to his house. Now, for someone whose religious standing meant that he had to be careful about who he was mixing with and who he was associated with, then this invitation, not just for Jesus to come to his house, but to actually share a meal with him, would suggest that at the very least he viewed Jesus as one who was ritually pure. We see that especially when we understand his reaction to the woman who gatecrashed the party. This guy had a major issue that this woman who he described as a sinner had shown up in his house, but he had absolutely no issue in sharing a meal with Jesus. So he, he must then view Jesus as one who lived his life in such a manner that it was sitting within the confines of the law. In fact, he takes it even further than that. He calls him rabbi at one point, or teacher. So he respects him. He even reveres him as one that teaches God's word, as one that, that develops an understanding of God within the lives and the minds of others. But despite the fact that he views him as ritually pure and respects him as a teacher and a rabbi within the law, he still has questions. Questions are going round and round in his head and round and round in his heart. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? 
Is he who he says he is? Is he more than just a rabbi and a teacher? And we know that this inner dialogue is taking place because Luke gives us insight into his thought process when the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. If this man is a prophet, he says. So that would suggest to us, could it be perhaps that this is a question he's wrestling with? Is Jesus a prophet? Is this guy more than just a teacher, more than just a rabbi? Is he actually communicating something of God to us for the here and now? Is there merit in his ministry? Is this revolution that he's leading across our nation, does this have God at its heart? Perhaps this is the motivation behind his invitation to dine with Jesus, to get answers to these things. We don't know what the motivation is. But what we do know is that even though this guy is still trying to work out what he thought about Jesus, even though he's still forming an opinion of Christ and wasn't sure what he believed about him, Jesus was still happy to hang out with him. He was happy to presence himself with someone still in the process of sussing out what he believed and what he thought about Jesus. And we've said this often and we'll keep on saying it, but in our churches today, we have this terrible habit of creating environments that welcome everyone in and say, see now that you're here, you must believe what we believe and you've got to believe it right now. We build communities where access to the community is based upon a subscription to and an affirmation of our belief system. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should build a culture where anything goes and where all beliefs are welcome to find their place as equal, but perhaps we need to realize that Jesus often intentionally hung around with those who were still sussing him out. He had no issue in being present with those that were still exploring what they thought about him and still figuring out what they believed about him. In fact, in this scenario in Luke 7, this man's entire belief system is about to be completely turned on its head and it's going to be turned upside down and on its head simply because this guy existed in the company in the presence of Christ. Notice Jesus doesn't arrive at this man's house, sit down at his dinner table and open up the conversation by instantly challenging him about what he believes. He doesn't off the bat begin a dialogue by telling him that he's wrong and confronting him with truth. No, he allowed the man's heart and his soul to journey towards a place of understanding. And he interacted with the journey that the man was on. The man begins to think to himself, if this man were a prophet, and Jesus then proceeds to reveal that he is a prophet by interacting with the man's unspoken thoughts. He begins to answer the questions of his soul through the actions and the happenings and the environment around him. And the really incredible thing is that this passage ends and we don't know what the resolution of that is. We don't know the outcome of the situation for the Pharisee. We're not told. We know the woman leaves a situation with peace. But the passage doesn't tell us if this Pharisee leaves with belief. It's left open-ended. And that challenges us on so many levels. Making room for him means that we need to build spaces in our churches that say, you are welcome to explore Jesus here. And that means that we acknowledge to people, you might still be trying to figure out what it is that you think and what it is that you believe about Jesus. And do you know what? That's totally okay. Because we can never see or know what's going on in someone's heart and soul. We can never know the motives of someone's heart. 
but the one who does know is journeying with them and is interacting with them to bring them to a place of understanding. He is challenging. He is interacting with their hearts and souls. We just need to make sure that we don't get in the way. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't present gospel truth, and it doesn't mean that we don't stand up for the Word of God or we don't challenge beliefs and behavior, but what it does mean is that we don't present unbelievers with faith ultimatums that they have to believe right now, this minute, what we believe on our terms and our conditions, because when we do, we tend to cut across the work of Christ in the heart of an individual. Equally, though, in this Pharisee, we see a guy who not just has a belief system, but we see a guy who's actually given his whole life over to serving that belief system, to ministering within that belief system. Now, we criticize and almost demonize the Pharisees when we read them in the Gospels, and to be fair, Jesus doesn't give them an easy time either. But what we have to realize is that while the outworking of their faith is way off, at its core is a faith in God. The starting point is right. The outworking of it and the journey is a bit distorted. But the starting point's right. This guy has been raised within a faith tradition. He has been trained within a faith tradition for his entire life. And one dinner party with Jesus turns it all on its head. You're making room for Jesus equally means then that as he takes his place and we spend time, spend time in his presence he may well begin to challenge some of the religious structures that we have constructed around our own souls. Things that actually we may have believed for our whole lives to be true. Things that maybe even we have been raised to believe as correct, but then suddenly in his presence, he actually begins to prove them as wrong. He may begin to dismantle some of the incorrect belief systems that we possess about ourselves, belief systems that we possess about other people, and belief systems that we possess about him. Making room for him oftentimes involves allowing him to change our vision, to change our perspective, and even to change our world view. And when he does that, he often does it in unconventional ways. Of course, he does his God. And we see that in Luke 7. Enter stage right the gate-crashing woman. It says in the passage, a woman in that town who'd lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed him, and poured perfume on them. Now, we don't know the name of this woman. All we know is that this woman is one that has led a sinful life within the town. And from her introduction, we see that actually her lifestyle has become her identity. Simon, the religious leader, knows her. He knows of her lifestyle. <clears throat> he knows that she is a sinner. And this is how he identifies her. He identifies her by her sin. <clears throat> now, the nature of her sin is not known to us. But the Aramaic word that is used here to describe sinner, when Simon says, if he knew who was touching her, touching him, that she is a sinner, the word sinner there means sinner and whore. So we can deduce then that her lifestyle has been somewhat immoral, and many conclude and believe that it involved prostitution. Now, apparently, this woman learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She discovered that there were a people gathering around the presence of Jesus. 
So she rushes to that moment. Specifically, it says a woman who'd led a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. This woman rushes to the presence of Jesus. She learns that he's a guest at the dinner party, and as soon as she learns that, she repositions herself within that environment. She drops what she's doing, she stops what's going on, and she rushes to his presence, and she arrives in his presence prepared. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She came prepared to give. And this half sentence at the end of the verse is so powerful and it's so profound. Her knowledge fueled her action. When she learned that Jesus was in town, when she learned that there was a people gathering around the presence of Christ, her sights were set, her mission was decided, her motives were established, her sole objective was to honor Jesus. She brings her alabaster jar of perfume. Now, alabaster jars were known for their ability to keep ointments pure and free from corruption. The properties within alabaster meant the ointments and oils weren't spoiled when they were put within such containers. And that meant that typically it was more costly, more expensive ointments and perfumes that were contained within them. This passage could have said she brought a jar, but specifically it says she brought an alabaster jar. It is pointing then to the fact that what she brought is costly. And certainly the inference from the text as to the woman's lifestyle leads us to believe that this jar and its contents cost her much, not just literally, but figuratively too. And we're led to believe that this is her most prized, most valued possession, and she brings her most prized, most valuable possession to the task of honoring Jesus. This woman enters the presence of Jesus prepared to honor him with all that she has. She arrives at the presence of Jesus. She arrives at the gathering round his presence ready to give all that she has to the task of honoring him. Question, do we? Do we do that? Every week we gather. Every week we gather round the presence of Jesus. Do we come to such gathering prepared? Do we come ready to honor him with all that we have? This woman honored him with everything that she had, and in doing so, she made room for him. And it's in this moment that we begin to learn what it looks like to make room for him says there, the woman stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, this woman's actions, her behavior causes all eyes in the room to fall on Jesus. You can bet your bottom dollar that as this woman arrives in the room and behaves the way that she behaves, that everybody immediately looks at Jesus to see what is he going to do? How is he going to respond? So actually, this act of honor turned focus to Jesus. It put him in the spotlight. It created a platform for him. This act of honor created a space for him. The attention of the entire gathering is on him and is on what he is about to do. It creates room for him to do whatever he wants to do. Imagine coming together as a people and honoring him in such a way, engaging all that we've got 
in our worship and adoration of him, that the entire focus was on him and what he is about to do. As we read this and we come to this point, our focus isn't on the man hosting the party or the woman gate crashing the party. It isn't on the sinful woman and her crazy actions or the righteous man and his inner thoughts. Our focus now lands on Jesus and what Jesus does here is incredible. He takes the negative inner thoughts of doubt and self-righteousness and the crazy, emotional, extravagant behavior of the woman and he brings them within a moment of ministry and uses both of them to accomplish his purpose. That's really big because what we've got here is rational, logical, religious thinking. But what we've also got is extravagant, emotional heart reaction. And very often in church, the big debates and divisions is over, should we be more logical and rational or should we be more emotional and extravagant? When in actual fact, in this moment, logical and emotional meet in the presence of Jesus and accomplish his purpose. Both of them are brought into his presence. Both of them are used by him because Jesus responds to the thoughts of the man and he also responds to the heart of the woman. To one, he brings proof. To the other, he brings peace. But regardless of the difference, both are met with the ministry and the response of Jesus. Pharisee says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. He, he questions the identity of Jesus and Jesus responds by revealing his identity. He responds to the inner thoughts of the man and reveals that actually he is prophetic and he does know who's touching him and he does know what kind of woman she is. She's a forgiven woman. That's the kind of woman she is. See, he knows what this man doesn't. He knows something that this man doesn't know, but what he does is he brings the knowledge of God into that situation. See, when we read this, this is a prophetic masterclass from Jesus hidden away in the middle of this dinner party. He brings a revelation of the mind of God. He brings the knowledge of God into that situation. He calls out the activity of God within that life and within that moment. He announces the response of God and the intentions of God, particularly in response to the inner questions of the man's soul. The questions that nobody else knows, but the prophetic begins to call them out and begins to address them. And he causes everyone within that gathering to begin to see that moment from an entirely different perspective. He causes them to see it from the perspective of God. This is a prophetic masterclass. This is a phenomenal picture of the prophetic. The prophetic brings a revelation of the mind of God. It brings the knowledge of God into a situation. The prophetic calls out the activity of God within lives and within moments. The prophetic announces the response of God and the intentions of God and responds to particularly the inner workings of souls and minds and thoughts. And the prophetic brings the perspective of God into a moment and into a situation. This is a stunning picture. But you know, here's something that is even more challenging. This woman's behavior is one that we champion in our churches when we read this, and rightly so with our biblical understanding, it's right that we do that. But put yourself in the Pharisee's sandals for a moment. Look at this from his perspective and probably the perspective of everyone else around that table. This woman gate crashes the party. Again, the English Standard Version helps us. It says, behold 
A woman in that town, when she learned, learned that Jesus was in town, she went to the house. She says, behold, the word there is low, it carries the connotation of suddenly, suddenly. In other words, surprisingly. They were surprised. They weren't expecting this, and they weren't expecting this because she wasn't invited. She just turned up, and her actions interrupted the proceedings, interrupted the atmosphere of the evenings, and her actions which brought the interruption, well, those actions are what we would call extravagant. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them. She poured perfume on them. She's crying. The Greek word that's used here for crying means to shower like rain. She's undone in her emotion. And she's sobbing and crying so much that the tears are described as showering like rain. That amount of tears and emotion is never quiet, is it? It's never silent. It's always accompanied by noise. So there's this noisy outburst of emotion as this woman appears and begins to cry all over the feet of Jesus. And then she begins to wipe them with her hair and she begins to pour perfume over them and she kisses them and she kisses them and she kisses them. This is a messy, noisy, undignified and inconvenient scene. It is interrupting the feng shui in the room. This is a moment that if this was a movie, it would be the moment that the background music suddenly stops and a gasp is heard as the cutlery hits the plates and everything pauses because this is a disturbance. Now, such a disturbance happening within a church setting today would be one that we'd all have a problem with because we've got an order that things happen and we're Pentecostal, we don't have an order, but we do. We do. There's a format, there's an approach that we expect things to happen and we get into that and we follow that journey through and we're having a great time. Imagine someone coming in in the midst of that and completely disturbing it. We would not be okay with that. But the reason that we are okay with this is because number one, Jesus has said it's okay. And number two, we've been given an understanding of the heart behind the actions. We've been given an understanding of what God is doing within this moment. We're okay with it because Jesus has given us insight into what's going on within the heart of the woman. So rather than criticizing it, we champion it. We champion it when we understand where she's been. We champion it when we understand what she's been through. We champion it when we understand the transformation that God has brought. And we look at it and we say, well, that's beautiful. That's stunning. It's moving. Instead of describing it as disturbing and a disturbance. And this is really challenging. How many times have we judged behavior and reactions in God's presence as messy or noisy or undignified or unnecessary when the truth is we don't know what's going on in the heart of the individual? We don't know where they've been. We don't know what they've been through. We don't know what is going on and what God is up to in that moment. How many times do we judge behavior in general? Take the presence of God out. How many times do we judge people and their behavior generally in life without understanding the process and the journey that they've been on or without understanding the process and the journey that God is taking them on? How many times do we look at something and decide that something isn't okay without discerning, first of all, if Jesus says it's okay? 
in this moment, we look at this disturbance and we think it's okay because Jesus says, this is all right, guys. How many times do we view things and go, well, that's out of line, that's not right, that's not correct, before actually coming to him and saying, Jesus, is this okay? Making room for him involves us striving for God's perspective on things and allowing him to transform our perspective. Jesus changes the perspective of the Pharisee towards the woman. He says to him, do you see this woman? I think actually this could be one of the most powerful statements in this passage. And it could be read deeper than we initially interpret it. Because the Pharisee doesn't see the woman. He just sees her sin. If he was a prophet, then he would know who is touching him and that she is a sinner. He doesn't see the woman. He just sees her sin. And Jesus says, wait, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Can you see the woman behind the reputation? Can you see her? Can you see her, her soul, her value, her destiny, her character? Can you see her? Do you see this woman? When your religious structures stop you seeing the soul because of the sin, it's time to take those structures down. When your belief system that you've constructed due to upbringing, due to nurturing, due to traditions, due to past hurt and pain, when the structures you build around your soul stop you seeing the person behind the behavior, stop you seeing the image of God beyond the staining of the sin or the character behind the flaws, then it's time to pause and recalibrate because your vision is distorted and you're not seeing with the eyes of God. But equally, this man says, if he were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him. Actually, the religious structures around his soul stop him seeing the identity of God and the activity of God in that moment. When the religious structures that we build around our souls, due to our upbringing, due to our traditions, due to our past experiences, due to hearts and pains, due to our experiences in church, when we begin to build structures around our soul that prevent us seeing who God is and what God is doing, then it's time to bring them down because our vision has become distorted. Do you see this woman? Jesus completely changes this man's outlook and vision and he does it so magnificently because not only does he challenge self-righteousness but he challenges the gender inequalities of the day this woman is viewed and described here as a sinner and a whore she comes into the presence of Jesus and she unbinds her hair and begins to rub his feet and kiss his feet in a declaration of love. And the religious man is completely repulsed by the sight of her touch. Why? The reason is because of her reputation. Reputation of an immoral woman. And this immoral woman with the lifestyle that she's had has just publicly undone her hair. Some commentators reckon that the undoing of hair in a public setting in that time and in that culture was the equivalent of going topless in public. 
This woman then has undone her hair and is caressing Jesus, caressing his feet, kissing them. And Jesus challenges not only the man's perspective from a religious, self-righteous point of view, but he also challenges it from a male point of view, that this woman is an object to be controlled by cultural conditioning, that this woman is an object existing for man's sexual pleasure that would mean that these actions could only be interpreted as inappropriate and sinful and sexual, that she would dare to enter into this setting with the men, that she would dare to undo her hair publicly like that, that she would dare to behave like that at the feet of a man. He says, stop. Do you see this woman? A woman created in the image of God. A woman expressing her heart before God with as much value as everyone else. Do you see her? He challenges not just that self-righteousness and those religious structures, but actually he challenges the whole cultural conditioning of the day. He challenges the gender inequalities by validating what was taking place as an act of worship, by saying this is valuable before God, by saying what is happening now is okay. He challenges the incorrect attitudes towards women and their place within spirituality. Go, Jesus. The interaction of Jesus with the thoughts of man begins to challenge the man's perspective, begins to challenge his worldview, begins to guide it towards the perspective of God, towards a kingdom worldview. Making room for God must involve a willingness to let God change our perspective to his, to give us his eyes and his heart and to recognize that a kingdom worldview may well stand in contrast with culture. And a kingdom worldview may well stand in contrast with what our upbringing, our traditions, even society may condition us to have. Making room for him means letting him change our perspective. And there's something in this church that God is calling us to as a people to explore. Jesus says to the man in verse 44, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus contrasts the actions of the man with the actions of the woman at his feet, and he links such actions to an experience of welcome. It was custom for the host to provide a welcome for his guests, and that welcome would have included the washing of feet, it would have included the anointing of the head with oil to soothe the skin from the sun, and it would have included greeting guests with a kiss. That was the custom of the day. That was the standard, standard welcome. Jesus calls out that this man has not provided what was considered as standard. But in comparison, this woman's behavior has exceeded the standard and has moved him beyond just a place of welcoming, but has actually put him in a place of honor within that meal. Her actions caused all eyes and focus to be upon him 
and allowed his identity to be revealed through his actions. How often do we go through the motions of Christian faith pursuing the standard level of what's asked for us? Turn up at church periodically, dip into the Bible now and then, throw up some prayer, give a bit of cash, occasionally talk about faith with others when the subject comes up. Actually, making room for God is about moving beyond the standard and beginning to extravagantly honor him in all aspects of our lives, to live in such a way that in every moment and in every circumstance, the position of our heart is one that moves the focus and the attention of all around us towards Jesus. To live in such a way that we extravagantly go over the top in our honoring of Him, that in every moment, in every circumstance, the position of who we are and the position of our heart begins to reveal His identity, His activity, His reality. Jesus affirms this woman's behavior. She comes to His feet and He affirms this as an act of worship. And this whole room is brought to an understanding that this woman's life has been transformed. She has been forgiven much, and as a result, is profoundly in love with Jesus. And it's amazing that the extreme love of this woman is experienced by Jesus, and it is understood by the entire room without the woman ever speaking a word. This passage does not record any dialogue from the woman at all. Do our actions reflect our heart? Do we engage our actions and our emotions in worship in such a way that they actually communicate the experience of the soul? That they communicate the story of the heart? That they express a transformed life? Every one of us, if we were to take a moment, it wouldn't be hard we could look back over our journey and we could tell amazing stories of God. Phenomenal things that he has done. Incredible change and transformation. Let me ask you this. If someone was to walk into this room today in the midst of worship, would they know that your life has been changed? Would they know that my life has been changed? Do we engage our actions and our emotions in worship in such a way that it communicates the experience of the soul? Do we need to learn the art of surrendered worship that engages all that we are and not just the academic exercise of Christian karaoke every Sunday? Jesus affirms this woman's act of worship. He affirms her forgiveness. He tells the room that her great demonstration of love reflects a deep experience of grace. Her deep love has shown that her many sins have been forgiven. That's what he tells us. But notice that he speaks in the past tense. Her deep love shows that her sins have been forgiven. She does not achieve forgiveness in that moment at his feet. She experienced that forgiveness before she arrived at his feet. It's her experience that fuels her actions. And Jesus affirms this by saying to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
he reiterates her status, forgiven. But this time he adds the statement that normally accompanies the releasing of the miraculous. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. The translation from the original Greek is your faith has made you whole, go into peace. See, the passage tells us that this woman has already experienced forgiveness before she arrives at the feet of Jesus, but she still leaves the feet of Jesus carrying something that she didn't have before. She found wholeness. She found peace. Could it be that although the woman experienced forgiveness and knew that she was forgiven, that she still carried the weight of the burden of her sin in her life? That she came bringing that alabaster jar that she'd paid for with her lifestyle, the most valued possession that she had, that was represented to her past. And she comes and she smashes it open at her feet and she pours it out in an act of worship. And having emptied herself and released the burden that she carried, she could then receive wholeness and peace. You know, sometimes we come into an experience of grace and we know because the scripture tells us that when we ask for forgiveness, forgiveness is granted. But that doesn't mean that we don't still carry the weight and the burden of our errors and our mistakes in our lives. Making room for him means actually coming and surrendering the burden. Surrendering the weight. Giving up all that we carry in exchange for his peace and his wholeness. That it's not just a head knowledge of forgiveness, but it's a heart experience of freedom and deliverance. This woman comes before him and she leaves different than she arrives. And in this interaction, Jesus changed this woman's standing and changed this woman's reputation. Prior to this encounter, she was known as the woman that led a sinful life. After this encounter, the world over knows her as the woman that loved much. We need to come and make space for him in our lives that he actually transforms who we are. He transforms our standing and our reputation. There are many things that we could be known for. There are many reputations that we could carry. But the greatest thing that we could be known for is that we are lovers of Jesus. Making room for him is surrendering our everything and allowing him to transform our status, our standing, and our reputation to become passionate lovers of Jesus. And you know, it strikes me that this woman's story was told, but it wasn't by her. She didn't arrive into this meal and say, excuse me, gentlemen, but I have a story to tell you and you need to hear it. She just comes and worships. And her testimony is told through her pursuit of passionate love of Jesus. I know I keep hammering on about this, but we need to lose the celebrity culture mindset of Christianity in church that is, I've got a message, I've got a word, I've got a story, and just become passionate lovers of Jesus. Just go after him with all that we've got and allow his presence and activity in our lives to declare our story near and far, to shout our ministry and our giftings to all around, to allow him 
to call out his work and his activity in our lives. Church, we need to go after him passionately. Let's stand if the worship team could come back.